Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Welcome back to another beautiful February day. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. Like when we talk about weird, let's talk about the weather yes. in February. Yes, we don't get to often say welcome back from a beautiful February weekend. Usually we're crying and complaining about the cold. Right. February is usually when I'm like, it's time to get out of town. Yeah. <laughs> and this February has been just wonderful. Oh, like delightful. I got to say, so I, I moved Wendy and you were the best when you helped me move. Oh, you really were. well, and, um, happy to. But the thing is, it made it easy to be happy too, because it was like, yeah. it was a nice day. It was yeah. sunny and everything. And if you guys have ever moved in the winter before, you'll know that moving in the winter is disgusting and it's horrible. Um, not this year. Yeah, that was awesome because truly it made the whole day so much, so much. Because every time we were outside, it was like, hey, it's nice out. I'm enjoying this, even though I'm hauling stuff back right. and forth. It's sunny. And <laughs> yesterday, a sunny 60 degree day. Mm -hmm. Today was 61 degrees as well, even though it wasn't yeah. sunny. It was still, I went off on a long run. So for Wisconsin, this is unheard of. Yeah, guys, this is, this it's, is crazy. It's scary. And, and, <laughs> And so, obviously, we're always talking about the weather in the Midwest. And if you guys <laughs> in the Midwest, you know that. Like, that's, that's what we thing. do. You know, everybody's like, oh, it's so boring to talk about the weather. Well, not here because it's always changing. But right now, everybody's absolutely talking about the weather mm -hmm. because something's up. <laughs> that's right. And I don't know what's up out there. Uh, whether somebody cast a magic spell or whether it's aliens like warming up the planet a little bit so that they can come down. And it's, so it's more like they're like the, like the Predator. Ooh. The predator would only show up in very, as uh, as the woman said in the original movie, very hot summers. Mm. And this summer, it grows hot. <laughs> hot, hot, hot. So that's what I feel like. Oh, my God. It's, but it's, it's fantastic outside. We hope if you guys are in the Midwest, you are enjoying, uh, I guess we wouldn't call it Indian summer. We call it Indian spring. I don't know. Whatever uh, it is, we're enjoying it. That's for sure. Because winter is sure to return soon you know, in its normal form. We, we always... In winter, at least the past 11 years, the first thing we look forward to is driving to Texas. Yes. In March for the South by Southwest Music Festival and seeing our friends and playing music down there. And and this year we're doing the same thing. We are. I can't wait, even though it's not as much of a reprieve from the weather. <laughs> but it's still exciting to get down and hang out mm -hmm. and party with, you know, tens of thousands of like-minded musicians right. and cool people. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so we are going to be in Texas at um, Friday night, March... 17th. 17th will be St. Patty's Day. St. Patty's Day will Ben's be Ben's birthday. Ben's birthday, our guitar player, <laughs> will be at Marble Falls, Texas uh, at Brass Hall. Yes. And March 18th, we're going to be in Austin proper at the Music Madness ATX Festival. That's right. Oh, and I love it. It's going to be so fun. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it. But anyway, we wanted to let you guys know that because even though we're finalizing our Texas plans, oh, and we might have a, a ghostly surprise for you guys too when ooh, we come back from Texas. That's and right. You guys are definitely going to see that and be excited about it. But Every year we, we stop by a couple of places and we visit. Last year we were doing haunted locations mm -hmm. in Cincinnati, Nashville, New Orleans, Galveston. Yes. Uh, we had a, a lot of fun. Fantastic. Yeah, it really was a nice <laughs> trip last year. But this year we haven't figured out, finalized the plans of where we're going between Madison, Wisconsin and Austin. 
So if you have any suggestions for us to go, and it can be a little bit of the side too, you know, yeah. a couple hours. It's a road trip. A couple hours east or west is not going to, you know, make us late or whatever. <laughs> like we, we, we bring that in, we uh, factor those equations in. So anyway, we're looking at the, the Tuesday and Wednesday, at least, of St. Patrick's Day week. And are there any cities that we should visit on the way down. In the past, so like I said, last year was Cincinnati and New Orleans and Nashville and uh, near Houston. A couple of years ago, we were in uh, Alton, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Outside of St. Louis. Yeah, and we've been to St. Louis on the way down yeah. there. We've been to uh, Oklahoma City on the way down yep. there. Tulsa on the way down there. Little Rock, Arkansas. Oh my goodness. Little that's Rock, right. Arkansas. That's that right. was fun. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. But the thing is, we've, we like to go to different cities and we can do the little paranormal thing. We got some music to do. So yes. if you have a city that you'd like to suggest, please send it to us and you can tweet us at Other Side Talk or you can say at Sunspot Mike or at Sunspot Wendy. Yeah. Or you can also email us at show at othersidepodcast.com. Mm-hmm. Or you can say something on the Facebook too. We that's check, true. We check yeah. that too. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but that that's going to be a, a fun thing we're doing next month. And we wanted to elicit your suggestions because we're getting down to the planning It is less than stages. a month away. All right. Coming up in the interview today, Kate, Jack Hunter is a PhD candidate and he's over in the UK. Hello. Yes. Accent time. Right, accent time. Anyway. Love it. So uh, Jack has a really interesting perspective on an anthropological approach to the study of the paranormal. Mm, that's or a new topic for our show. Is it a paranormal approach to the study of anthropology? <laughs> Either way. Anyway, Allison from Rocky Ghost jumps in and joins us too. And we interview Jack this weekend. And you should check it out right now. Jack Hunter is an anthropologist and PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of Bristol in the UK. He is also the editor and founder of the far-reaching online periodical Paranthropology, Journal of Anthropological Approaches to the Paranormal. We're delighted to talk with him today about all manner of cross-cultural adventures into the unknown. Welcome to see you on the other side, Jack. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Fantastic, fantastic. So you are currently in Bristol? Uh, I'm not actually in Bristol, no, but at university in Bristol. Okay. I live in mid Wales, which is uh, a little bit further north than Bristol. Okay. Uh, and a bit more rural. <laughs> All right, fantastic. So joining us today is my sister Allison Jornlin mm-hmm. from Milwaukee Ghost. Allison, thanks for coming on today and thank you for suggesting this very interesting interview candidate today. Oh, so excited. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, Jack, I, I guess. Um, we're interested to learn a little bit. What got you into a paranormal approach to anthropology? Like, what was your inspiration? Well, um, I've been interested in paranormal stuff basically forever. Interested in weird things. And uh, when I was younger, I used to be interested in vampires and stuff. And then I had a, an alien fad <laughs> and uh, bought lots of books about aliens and read a lot about UFOs and things. And then... Um, at some point, I also became interested in kind of like druidry and magic and Wicca and a little bit of witchcraft. And I um, dabbled with that kind of stuff for a little while, but didn't really get very deep into it. And you, and you um, can't go to school for that, even in the UK, right? <laughs> no, you can't. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I've also been interested in, although I'm not particularly religious in any way myself, always been interested in religion and uh kind of a cross-cultural thinking, thinking about other cultures and being interested in other cultures. So um, when I finished high school, 
I decided that the only way that you can kind of study this, you know, it's quite a broad range of things. The only way you can really study this in an academic way is through uh, something like anthropology. I went to university, studied archaeology and anthropology, and then as I was studying, I found, uh, I came across the writings of certain anthropologists that were particularly interesting, kind of incorporating an experiential approach to magic and religion and ritual. And I thought, yeah, this is the way to go, a kind of experiential, participatory kind of anthropology. So can you can, talk about wait, I, I can't get this in. Can yeah. you talk about some of those influences, those other anthropologists who had done some uh, studies that intrigued you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, I think I can't remember what year of university it was. Maybe the third year, final year. I, I was doing an anthropology of religion module with my supervisor Fiona Bowie, who she's now my supervisor for my PhD. And she started talking in one session about um, an anthropologist called Edith Turner, who was married to Victor Turner, who's kind of like one of the big names in anthropology. He's one, he's the guy who really brought concepts like liminality and communitas into the anthropological kind of lexicon. Okay, real quick though, you're gonna have to what, what's liminality and community? You'll have to speak. Well, to let's us. unpack that, shall we? Unpack that for the plebs here. Like liminality is kind of like. It's kind of like an in-between state. So if you think about, uh, Victor Turner drew a lot on the work of um, another anthropologist who did research on um, kind of coming-of-age rituals. Arnold van Gennep was his name. And um, his interest was in kind of when you're going through a coming-of-age uh, ritual, you, you enter into a kind of in-between space. So you start off as a child, and then during the ritual, you're kind of not a child or an adult, so you're in-between. And that's what liminality is, basically. And then when you come out the other side, you're you kind of like uh, you're an official adult. So kind of a gateway. Yeah. So liminality is this in-between kind of place. Um, yeah, it's like a, a, a gateway between realms or between kind of different stages in life. It could be between anything. So like a doorway is liminal because it's between two rooms. Okay. A lot of cultures have ceremonies to do that. I mean, that that's a, the first episode of Roots, right? They have that, he's doing the, the kind of, the child, uh, you know, into an adult thing. And I think that the first episode of Vikings, uh, they do the child yeah. into an adult thing too. And, in, you know, we don't have any of that kind of, I mean, the bar mitzvah they have, but like most regular, I mean, I think about most American culture, it's like, when are, yeah. you, a, when are you a man? I don't know, the day your dad takes you to the back and it's like, you're a man today, son, get a job. Yeah, it's true. We seem to have lost a lot of our kind of ritual heritage, I guess. Um, I don't really know why that is. Probably a variety of different factors, like increasing rationalization and stuff and thinking we don't need to do these things anymore to mark when we're an adult or whatever. But I think it's a bit of a shame in some ways. But yeah, there are other ways. People work out their own ways of, of initiating themselves into adulthood, I guess. I've been working on pushing it off for about 25 years now. <laughs> I want to go back the other way. Right. <laughs> I don't want to turn around. That's it. Well, well, entering into those liminal times is when you can do that. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit, the importance of ritual. Because, you know, it seems that in modern culture, the dominant culture anyway, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've lost a lot of that, of, of ceremony. And... Uh, I feel that loss, and I wonder if others do as well. I'm sure they do. I mean, um, one of the contexts where I think it is really clearly seen, how we've lost this kind of 
way of ritually structuring things is with things like the psychedelic experience. If you look at traditional cultures where they use things like peyote or ayahuasca or, or whatever, they use the psychedelic substances in this ritual context where it actually means something, um, where it's kind of socially beneficial, people can get stuff out of it. And we basically, I guess, probably going back, you know, way back, but certainly from like the 1960s and 70s onwards when all of these drugs became properly illegal, uh, we've lost that. So now when people come to try these substances, they are using them in um, you know, not ritual contexts. They might be in party situations or any kind of situations that not, you know, that are not really suitable for exploring the full potential of these substances. But I think so that's a real good example of where this ritual thing, you know, potentially could be reincorporated into our society. You know, and we did a full episode on LSD uh, a, a little while ago, and the mm. fact that they used to sell LSD in the, like the back of magazines, you know, <laughs> in like the 1960s before it became illegal. Yeah. And, uh, and in, in sex, drugs, and rock and roll, LSD is the, uh, that is the drug they are talking about. Mm. But I think it's funny, especially when you talk about the decoupling of psychedelics from ritual in that it is a party situation or, you know, it, it you see people, uh, you know, like wandering around stoned out of their minds or something. And it's, it doesn't have that meaning associated. If they find God, mm -hmm. they, they find, they, they stumble on him. They don't go seeking. Yeah. Him. They don't go seeking. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when we talk about psychedelics used in these, in these rituals, what were some of the, the rituals for? Like we, we talk about. Like, were they religious in nature? They're spiritual in nature? What would be the kind of ritual that somebody would take ayahuasca for? Well, they could be used for lots of different kinds of things. Um, usually, it's some kind of, you know, it could be part of uh, just like a ritual calendar, for example, where it's something that you do every year or so, the whole community or most of the community, to kind of reconnect with the experiential understanding of their cosmology. Um, or it could be for specific other kinds of reasons, like uh, say someone was is ill, or you know someone needs some kind of healing. Then the the shamanic practitioner would be the one who would use the substance and go into the altered state and try and um, appease the spirits that might be making that person ill, or you know some kind of other other kind of healing techniques. Um, or other examples. Sometimes I've read about it being used for like um, finding lost objects and things so when the the shaman uses the substance to enter into this altered state to enter into the other world and somehow you know it's easier for them in that state to track down these lost objects and basically it could be used you know for any of these kinds of, uh, of situations i can't wait to lose my keys like oh my keys are gone <laughs> oh, 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 no. oh no have to trip um, <laughs> i have a ton of questions of course but you know we're getting to the heart of it i think in that our own dominant culture seems to have lost its way in terms of the sacred it, it seems that the sacred is not there and i i was um actually talking to someone just last night about their experiences with psychedelics and of course i, I always am seeking the spiritual and i wanted to know well was a spiritual experience, you know? And this is someone that I was talking to that, that has had lots of experiences when she is not on the medicine of, you know, seeing ghosts and having extraordinary experiences. But she was telling me, oh, no, you know, uh, LSD and mushrooms, that's all in your head. And I was surprised about how, with the disconnect there of her party 
uh, orientation towards psychedelics and how it, it wasn't connected at all with her experience of the supernatural. Mm. Yeah, I think um, in part it's kind of you know due to our culture for a long time. You know, like I said before, at least since the '60s, but I mean, even going back before that. It's interesting. Uh, have you seen the book Shroom by Andy Letcher? No, I haven't. I'll put that on the reading list. It's a good book. It's like a social history of magic mushroom use. But they found like, you know, you think of people using magic mushrooms like way back in the Celtic times or whatever, but there's not that much kind of evidence for that. And it, the only kind of historical evidence for mushroom consumption, like psychedelic mushroom consumption is very negative. Like it's it's a it's a dangerous thing. You shouldn't eat them. It'll kill you. It's poisonous and all that kind of stuff. There's only relatively recently that people, well, in Europe anyway, people have been using these magic mushrooms. And I think a lot of that in, is kind of embedded in our culture. So we have a real negative um, association with them. It's interesting. There was um, an anthropologist, well, an ethnobotanist kind of or kind of semi-professional ethnobotanist called uh, Gordon Wasson. A semi-pro. There's a league for ethnobotanists, right? Like, it's, you know, <laughs> then you're up in the big leagues. When you're... The League of Extraordinary Ethnobotanists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Well, he talked about um, what he called mycophilic cultures and mycophobic cultures. So a mycophilic uh, culture is a culture that really likes mushrooms and they're happy to try different kinds of mushrooms. And then you have mycophobic cultures that are very afraid of magic mushrooms and things oh like myco like the yeah. Uh, myco yeah myco like, like mycology mycelium exactly isn't corn that q-u-o-r-n stuff that's all made out of mycoprotein yeah, that's, myco <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's how i even know that because i eat uh, like corn stuff he, he's a vegetarian i'm a vegan so <laughs> uh, i'm a vegetarian our dominant society is kind of uh, mycophobic Definitely psychedelic mycophobic anyway. Yeah, so this leads me to talking about a personal experience with you, uh, where I teach at an intertribal school. So I am in a situation where on the day-to-day basis, you know, I'm in two worlds. I, you know, I'm not, not really in the dominant culture anymore. I mean, I am. I mean, it's the fight against it, I guess. <laughs> but... Um, one example is that this year I went from being mycophobic to mycophilic. <laughs> I had always been interested, but um, just really this year, I don't something about it. I, I got into it. I was able to, and these are all non-psychedelic mushrooms, just um, foraging. Boring. You understand. Sorry, but I, okay, I'm getting to the spiritual part though. All right, man. So, um, so my interest by coincidence coincided with the best year for mushrooms we've had here in Wisconsin in, in decades. And um, so I was trying all these foraged mushrooms, and it was a great experience. And then uh, at school, I um, walk a certain pathway to the parking lot every day for 10 years. And one day I'm walking by, and I see something just off the kindergarten playground. And I had just learned about these giant puffball mushrooms the the weekend before. And I'm like, hey, could that be? And at that time, it was just like the size of like a softball. And I, I went over to it, and it was indeed one of those gigantic puffball mushrooms. So I enlisted my class to measure it. We were measuring it every day and like comparing the growth and everything like that. And then one day I, I was leaving for a long weekend and I thought, oh man, I really should measure it before I leave because when I come back on Monday, then there'll be a difference and we can do the math and, and such. So I went out and I got my um, trusty tape measure and I went to, to measure the mushroom. And as I'm measuring the mushroom, I hear some commotion in the woods. 
And I'm like, Bigfoot, is that you? But no, it was two little ground squirrels, um, chipmunks, we call them. And they were wrestling and they rolled out of the forest at my feet, literally. <laughs> and I'm like, this is strange. This doesn't usually happen. That's your spirit animal. There's a superhero named Squirrel Girl, and that could be you. <laughs> it could be me. So, um, you know, I try to look for signs now of non-ordinary reality. And so that was the clue. And then I'm just like, you know, I'm not Snow White, guys. This isn't safe, you know. And so they ran off. But, you know, they didn't even, like, acknowledge me. And then I went continuing uh, measuring the mushroom. And they did it again. Yeah. And uh, so then I had my measurements and I went away. And um, when I came back, I talked to uh, my Oneida teacher at the school. Because I, I said to her, I feel like I'm getting a message from the mushrooms this year, but I don't know what it is. And then I, as I described to her about, you know, my skepticality, um, you know, how I, I've been a paranormal investigator for some years now. And when you run into all manner of wacky people and a dearth of evidence from your investigations and just like mostly nothing happening, uh, you get really jaded about it. And that's um, where I've been for the last few years. And if the mushrooms are talking to you, Allison, then you probably should have just, <laughs> you should probably should have just I, dropped acid that day and hugged the squirrels. Just be like, I, I think it. I flipped I my guys. switch. I've definitely flipped my switch. But this is, you know, one of the things that did it is I'm talking to her and I described, you know, I've been feeling very skeptical of late, but then, you know, this happened. And um, I feel like there's some message in here. And then I described to her about mushrooms and how um, underneath the ground, you know, at any given time, there's miles and miles of mycelium that you never know is there. But it's always there. It's communicating to, to the forest. It's sending nutrients. It's supporting uh, and underlying everything. And then uh, just very, very infrequently, does evidence of it burst forth and, you know, become apparent. And then, you know, just as soon as that, it's gone. And then I got the message as I was explaining that to her that, oh, that is what spirit is like. You know, okay. spirit is underlying and nourishing everything. And so I came upon this idea of the necessity of the decolonization of belief, that we are in a situation now where, you know, we can choose and, and we don't have to kowtow to the tyranny of materialism anymore. There are different perspectives, you know, that you can choose to adhere to. Um, if you find that they're more aligned with you personally. And yeah, I'd like your comments. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to, talking about mushrooms and mycelium and all of that stuff. Recently, I've been um, doing a permaculture course. I don't know if you've ever come across permaculture before. There's lots of people think of it as kind of like just gardening, but actually it's more kind of, um, it's just a different way of thinking about our place in the environment. Um, so, for example, it thinks in terms of systems, like ecosystems, and how we're part of an ecosystem. So if we want to produce a productive garden, for example, then we have to um, kind of engage and participate and observe and interact with our own environment to see what kinds of plants work best there. But basically, it's just to realize that we are a part of the system. And, uh, they, yeah, they use the mycelium analogy quite a lot in permaculture these networks of interconnected uh, beings basically all kind of symbiotically living together the way that the mushrooms um, help provide nutrients for the trees and all of these kinds of things it's really interesting but I've been thinking a lot just going back to your what you're saying about um, how we can choose the way we think about the world I've been thinking of ways of tying in um, kind of like local folklore 
traditions, kind of like um, local ways of thinking about the landscape with a, with a kind of permaculture, an underlying permaculture uh, understanding of the environment. So uh, one of the things I've been thinking about is get, trying to get kids, first of all, to re-engage with the local legends of our local area. So we have quite a lot of legends in Wales that every valley you go in has some kind of a story about dragons or uh, giants or ancient rocks and things. I've only been to Wales for, I think, three days, you know, and I drove through it and we went surfing there and uh, really enjoyed visiting Cardiff and all there is. And I went on a Doctor Who pilgrimage because I'm a nerd like that. But um, (laughs) so, you know, drove around really. But to make it clear to the listeners, when you talk about like, there's so many like beautiful mountains and hills and Mm. like, there's a lot of rural majesty that I think when you say like everything can be associated uh, with a legend or a folktale that yeah. when, you know, and I love the Midwest in the you know, U.S. and a lot of it's beautiful, but a lot of it's super flat. And I, it's, mm-hmm. it's the exact opposite over there. So I just wanted to get people in their mind yeah. when they think about the valleys and the hills and everything, you're thinking about a really beautiful area. It is. It's a lovely lush kind of green. Uh, it's It's all, all the valleys, the end of the valleys, you have waterfalls and uh, there's dense woodlands and things it's just a it's a lovely place mm-hmm. and yeah everywhere everywhere every valley has its own kind of legends and stories i don't know if, if you've ever come across the mabinogion just the ancient kind of uh the kind of mythic canon of wales basically there are four parts to it and each of them is filled with these amazing stories that they kind of weave in with arthur king arthur but they um the stories kind of as you read them, they kind of take you around Wales and everywhere is, a, is linked up with different kinds of stories. So what I've been thinking is, you know, but like the Aboriginal green time stories mm-hmm. yeah. where they kind of engage with the landscape. They walk around the landscape on their walkabouts and they kind of relive the, the dream time. I think we need to try and do that kind of thing here in Wales for one thing, but perhaps, you know, in every single locality reconnecting with an idea of the landscape, something that is alive, that has lots of different kinds of entities potentially living, you know, both physical and maybe non-physical as well. I've come to think that maybe these kinds of ways of thinking, although they're not necessarily scientific, that they might still be in some way more accurate ways of understanding the environment. Do you see what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. And and the other thing with skepticism is, you know, what I noticed I was doing is really kind of brushing a lot under the carpet, you know, when things didn't fit in a certain box. And really, I don't want to be, you know, I'm like the opposite of that. I, I don't understand why it was happening to me. But um, I, I shared with uh, Mike uh, last April, we went to a haunted location and I had a presentation there, a two-hour presentation about, you know, local legends and ghost stories. And I really was so excited that they invited me, but I didn't expect to have an experience there. And I really never expect to have an experience. <laughs> but um, so when I, I was there, after I had done with my presentation, we were setting up to do the live podcast there. And I was just stowing some of my gear under a table. And I happened to look up and I saw an actual white orb, you know, stereotypical white orb, you know, and I'm very like anti like orb photos, but I saw one with my eye, like fly at my head, like past my, my head and my periphery. 
it, but it happens just so quickly. It happens yeah. like in a blink. And I didn't tell anyone about that, even though um, after all the presentations and performances and all, we had a ghost hunt. Um, you think I would mention that to someone? <laughs> and I didn't even tell Michael here until the, that Monday afterward. This was a mm -hmm. Saturday. And I, I, I said, well, Mike, I saw an orb. And that was really peculiar to me that, you know, I could be all about it. And still, when something strange happens, I, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, kind of keep it to yourself. Well, and I think that what you were getting to there, uh, Jack, to, to connect it, is that when you talk about the legends of a place and the folklore of a place and understanding, even going to the, the permaculture, understanding your place in the system, you yeah. know, I think that's something, uh, you, when you get to the end of War of the Worlds, right? So, spoiler for War of the Worlds if you guys haven't read it. <laughs> But at the end of War of the Worlds, the, the Martians eventually die because they're not used to the microbes that we have on yeah. Earth. And we've developed an immunity to those microbes over millions of years of evolution. And the idea is that those millions of years of evolution have made, so this is our home and this is our place, this is our planet. And feeling that connection to the system and the planet and everything and, and kind of knowing your place in it, when you think about Native American culture, and especially when they, when they talk about the in, the in the American West and the connection to the land, and it's not necessarily an ownership of the land, but it's an under, you know, the stories, the folklore, the legends, the, the mythology, all comes from that connection to the land. When you talk about whales, that every mountain has a story and it's connected to mm -hmm. King Arthur. Okay, do we know, do we have a historical figure that was King Arthur? No, mm -hmm. you know, but we have, uh, you know, we've got the, t like the, the Mallory uh, King Arthur. And then that yeah. legend leads to, uh, you know, the last Merlin series that, you know, that they had a few years back. Or Camelot yeah. with, uh, wasn't Eva Green in Camelot? Oh, she's hot. But... <laughs> You know, but you you know what I'm talking about. Even so I can agree. Those those <laughs> legends those legends can go on for for millennia, and mm. it's connected to a place and connected to a time. And, and kind of understanding those legends helps us understand our place in there. So it's not a scientific thing. We can't point to well, who was the historical Merlin? Well, I know we don't. There's no, there's no historical Merlin unless I was. <laughs> well, right, but I mean <laughs> that, we, that we know you know that we can't point yeah. to like his death. We can't go to his grave. We can't. But you can go to a place and feel it. And you can do that with legends and folklore. And really in the U.S., that's something that we're uh, not great at because no. our ancestors, I mean, our, our recent ancestors for the Europeans have only been here for maybe a couple yeah. hundred years if on the East Coast or less than 100, you know, or 120 years if you're like in the Midwest and stuff. And if you're in mm -hmm. California, the, you know, the, the European legends only go out less than 100 years. So yeah. I think there's a, there's a need for us to feel that kind of connection to a place and that yeah. kind of understanding of a, of our, uh, and understanding our place in that system. And it's something that, rituals can help with it's something that understanding the folklore can help with and as immigrants mostly to this place i feel like it's something that we lose yeah but i think also it's not it's obviously the stories are there in america they're just first nation stories right and you haven't or the the europeans haven't necessarily connected with those stories and probably in most places have actually tried to eradicate the stories so yes. they can implant their dominance on it. But I think even here in Wales, we have a similar kind of thing. 
Um, in fact, probably in most places in the in the Western world, in in a scare quotes. <laughs> right, we're we're still using the terminology like we're talking about the sun never sets on the British Empire here. <laughs> in this Western world, we've we've lost the connection with the meaning of these stories. Um, I mean. This is why I think we need to reconnect with them and try and get young kids to reconnect with them as well. Because I imagine going out into the village and talking to people here, for example, not many people are going to know about the story of the dragon that lived up the valley or the story of the giants that built a, built a bridge over the valley or whatever. They're just not going to have heard about that because it's there's something about our culture that has kind of eradicated it, you know, eradicated that kind of stuff. I just doesn't want to to think about it anymore. I'm more comfortable thinking about the, you know, the kind of geological processes that have created the valley, you know, in, in purely physical, material terms. We're not interested in the the stories of how these big rocks appeared there or whatever. And that seems like a fun way to do it too, because it's like, yeah. okay, now uh, Allison and my father was a. Uh, high school science teacher so he'd yeah. take mm-hmm. us out and be like well here's where the glacier deposited all the rocks and blah and he did a great <laughs> job he was a smart guy but you're sitting there like i'd love to see okay i want to hear about the glacier but i also want to hear about that giant too yeah. like how can we connect them so it's like okay here's the scientific explanation and it's awesome and here is yeah. the legend and it is awesome right they're, they're two just two ways of interpreting the same system but the the kind of mythic narrative approach allows you to kind of participate in it. And I think it's that participation with the, the landscape of even going back to ritual as well. It's particip- participation in ritual that allows you to experience what the ritual is all about. It's like it might be participation in the landscape that allows you to experience what the landscape is all about. And if people were beginning to participate in the landscape a bit more, then we would have more respect for our local areas and want to preserve our traditions and things. And also, you know, encourage the diversity of these legends. I mean, we don't want everyone to have the same legend in the same place. We want to see you know, naturally occurring stories and narratives for individual places. Well, think of the homogenization of Santa Claus. Like even well, that yeah. particular thing, it's like the Coca-Cola Santa Claus. Like that's cool, but I want to hear about Father Christmas or I want to hear about Connect Ruprecht going in and beating some yeah. kids. <laughs> yeah. Especially when they're bad. Krampus and (laughs) I love the idea of getting people to root into their local folklore and to the environment. And I think that certainly can help us to, you know, start experiencing the world more fully. And it's, you know, I'm I'm very, um, very interested in science, but... You know, it's another way of, of thinking. It's another tool in your toolbox. It's not yeah, exactly. the be-all and end-all. It's not the only way that you can experience life. And it's not an either-or situation. It's both of them together help you to gain a kind of a, a broader understanding of the landscape or of your place in the landscape. I think it's the same with all kinds of, you know, theories and explanations for things, especially if you think about something like in anthropology and thinking about spirit possession. A lot of my writing is all about saying there are these functionalist theories, there's these medical theories, there's these psychological theories and cognitive theories and all of this. But if you were just to take one of those theories and assume that it explains the whole of the phenomenon, then you're you're missing out on loads of other different aspects that are equally as important. And actually, 
the complexity of the phenomenon starts to make more sense when you take all of these different theories, you know, kind of like say, yeah, this one explains this aspect of the phenomenon, but it doesn't explain that. Maybe this one explains that. It, it just shows you how complex the thing actually is. I'm talking about spirit possession now. Yeah, Sweet. and I know you've, you've talked before, too, about um, the validity of people's experience. And, you know, I want to get into that a little bit because um, my own experiences, you know, that that's what I'm I'm dealing with, you know, like fighting against this idea that, oh, that's crazy. Well, in your case, Allison, it is crazy, so that's <laughs> fine. Well, uh, just not even being able to process it because it's so foreign to what you're used to. But it is part of experience. You can't just, you know, you, well, I'm, I'm sure that people do. I'm sure, you know, if I'm doing it, if I'm brushing things under the rug and I don't even mean to, you know, I'm sure you people who are... Um, you know, more adherent to, you know, the dominant culture, you know, what crazy experiences might they be having? But no, no, but doesn't, doesn't Well, match. and what kind of crazy experiences have you, did you find a remarkable? So you studied, obviously, a variety of different cultures. And is there any particular kind of experience that you find that happens to a lot of people? In could be in ritual, could be just in folklore, but is there anything in particular that you find is remarkable that cultures share, even though they haven't been in contact with each other? Well, yeah, there's loads of different ones. I mean, near-death experiences, for example. There's a great um, historian of religions called uh, Gregory Shushan who did an amazing study of uh, near-death experience reports um, in in societies that couldn't have had any contact with each other and you only using records, you know, the oldest records he could find of those societies. And sure enough, he found that even societies that had never been in, in touch with each other, they were still reporting the classic features of near-death experiences, which is pretty cool. Spirit possession or spirit mediumship, the belief that the body can be possessed by spirits, is pretty much a worldwide phenomenon. Most cultures have some kind of an idea that this is possible. Do most cultures treat it as something that's scary like we think well we all think possession i mean the first thing we think of is you know vomiting pea soup but do, I mean, <laughs> how, how do most cultures think of it does something scary some think it's positive some it's excited about it well there's two different ways of thinking about spirit possession you can have on the one hand um like negative spirit possession which is probably more like what we see in films but it's usually associated with illnesses and things like that so if someone is ill the the medicine man or the shaman or the the priest might suggest that that's some kind of, you know, possession by negative spirits. So that's the negative side of it. And that kind of possession usually requires some kind of an exorcism or something to get rid of the spirit or a ritual of some kind. And then you have um, like voluntary spirit possession, which most people call mediumship. And this is something that we find in a lot of cultures, that there are designated members of societies who Who's basically whose job it is to go into their trance and allow spirits to communicate through them. There's an anthropologist called Erica Bourguignon. I can't remember the exact figures uh, that she gave now, but it's something like 90% of the societies she studied from this sample of adequately described societies um, had the belief that altered states of consciousness were associated with spirit possession. So it's one of those things. It's it's an interpretation that people derive from their experience of alter states of consciousness, or it seems to be. And uh, as we're all human beings, we can all engage with these altered states and um, they have it. It's one thing that's really widespread. So when it comes to spirit possession, so the people in the culture that would take it, you know, would that be uh, like a shaman or something who would, get to, or the medicine man who would kind of yeah. 
uh, use this possession then to heal or to make a prophecy. Yeah, exactly. There is a distinction between shamans and mediums. The usual or one of the usual distinctions is the uh, extent to which mediums are able to recall what happened during their trances. So when a medium comes back from their trance, uh, usually, although not in all cases, I, it, this is the problem. It's such so difficult to to give general specifics about things, but I'll give it a go. Actually, sure. this like everything's blurry. That's, but um, <laughs> that, that's the nature of the beast when it comes to anthropology and psychology. When it comes to everything, I think. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, Mediums don't recall what happened in their trance because when they're in their trance, the spirit is controlling their body and they are off somewhere else. But when you look at things, um, at shamanic practices, the whole point of going into the trance is usually so that, and this is not to say that some shamans don't do spirit possession as well, where they do lose consciousness, but in shamanism, most of the time, the purpose is to bring back information. So it's important or essential that you can remember that information. So shamans go into the spirit world on particular journeys to do stuff, to find things, and they come back with information that they've remembered, whereas mediums um, kind of, they just, they kind of like blank out and let the spirits do the talking directly. Oh, they become a vessel. They become a vessel, exactly. And and I just thought of something that I haven't thought of before. You know, I think about the TV show Quantum Leap. Sam, Scott Bagley's character, was possessing those bodies like he would you always just think of him like he well he's in the body he is possessed there is there is a scientist from the future that is going back in time and possessing people's bodies dispossessing their consciousness back to his body which is in the future sitting in the waiting room or whatever and he's back in the past like controlling them um He's controlling them for good. But then like the fourth season, they had like an evil leaper who was contr- like a negative. Oh, so those are your, t- your two examples of, of like positive possession coming back to the past yeah. to control a body uh, and then negative possession. And, we, and it's funny because it's the same kind of story as any other kind of uh, – you know, legend or story about possession would be about a sp- like, well, this cre- this you know this god from the future is taking over the body to to help us through to make sure the history goes along the right course, and we think of it as a science fiction story, and really, yeah. I mean, obviously the science fiction is all waves of the hand and magic anyway. They're not using any. There's no there's no science about going back, uh, and, and possessing people like to stop the assassination of JFK or something. <laughs> And who doesn't want to be possessed by Scott Bakula? No, I want to be possessed not, by Scott Bakula. No one can love you like Scott Bakula can love you. <laughs> that right is, hey, I don't I know. Uh, anyway, so I'm sorry. I just thought That's about great. that when you talked about the I possession. I never thought of Quantum Leap as a spirit possession program, but <laughs> <laughs> probably right. Well, we'll take you to places you never imagined. <laughs> yeah. I think we're, we're really getting into, when you talk about these rituals of the shaman and the medicine men and the idea of the spirit journey. And do we have anything that's in our modern culture that you might consider as an analog to the, uh, like some kind of spiritual journey? Do we have anything that we've kind of created even to try and make up for the fact that that ritual has been taken out of our culture? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, well, immediately the thing that popped into my mind then was like, um, you know, things like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. Because they are the hero's journey, right? The hero's journey exactly yeah. follows the mythic archetypes. It's something that we can, you know, lose ourselves in. But at the same time, it's the kind of, it's like the distilled Western version of it. Do you get what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, 
it's distanced from us. It's not, we don't go on the journey ourselves, but we, we observe it. It's like we've separated ourselves from it. And it's through the media, so it's kind of like, well, that's just TV or that's just movies. You know, it, it's not real. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's handed to us as like, here's your substitute for not being able to experience it for yourself. Well, what do you see as like the role of psychedelics in maybe bringing some of that ritual back? I think that there's potentially a role for psychedelics in, in doing that. But obviously, it has to be done sensibly. And if it is done with, I think people do do this, use, start beginning to realize that we need to use these substances responsibly and sensibly and for a purpose. I mean, it's fine. It's, it's good to use them for entertainment as well. But as long as we are aware that we're using them responsibly and sensibly, then, uh, yeah, I think they could benefit us. You mean I didn't accidentally bump and grind with Jesus at a rave that one time? Like that <laughs> Like, I thought I was having, hey, he brought glow sticks. <laughs> you just want to show your appreciation, right? <laughs> yeah. But how can we open the door to the sacred again? I mean, I really feel that it's largely been lost. And, you know, we just kind of compartmentalize it or it's it's not a day-to-day life kind of thing, you know, uh, letting the spiritual enter in. And, you know, I really think that at this point in our evolution, we really need that. We need to get that part of us back. And, you know, I know through, you know, connecting through legends, like you said, and in connecting with with nature, we can certainly try to find our way back that way. But yeah. it's just like, how, how do we get out of this uh, materialist mode of thinking, you know, this reductionist mode of thinking, and back to something more holistic? Mm-hmm. Well, I've been in my writing... Uh, thinking about this thing that I've been calling ontological flooding, which is basically, uh, it's not a new idea or anything. It's just kind of like my rephrasing of a bunch of other ideas. But it's basically an approach uh, specifically for kind of anthropologists and things, but you could also branch out into your way of, of living, but where you're essentially open to multiple possibilities and uh, try not to limit yourself to one interpretation of events um, or of the world so like for example in the western world again or euro-american world we take science as the dominant the best model for understanding the world but like i was saying before myths and ritual and legend and things like this give us another way of perhaps more empathetically understanding the world not as um kind of like objective, separated entities but as participatory, you know, parts of the system. So ontological flooding is all about not, it's, it's basically not believing anything at all, <laughs> in a way. It's just experiencing what happens. And then if you have certain kinds of experiences that um, other people would consider weird or abnormal, don't just brush them aside and ignore them, but kind of engage with them and experience them and participate with them and see where it takes you. And not to try and reduce it to a single explanation. So yeah, say you saw a ghost, you could say, you could reduce it right down and say, yeah, it was just a a hallucination caused by the darkness in the room. But if you take like an ontologically flooded perspective, then it it could be that, but it could also be a ghost or the conditions 
in the room were the necessary conditions for you to have that kind of experience. And when, once you start to open yourself up to exploring these other possibilities, no matter how weird or strange they are, you might be moving towards a more kind of accurate uh, representation or explanation or description of the thing that you were experiencing. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And so ontology, can you explain that a little bit? Um, you know, what, what that refers to the, in, in the ontological flooding yeah. term? Yeah. So, an ontology is basically, it's like your, um, your map of the things that exist within reality, the things that exist as, as in what's really real. So, for example, if you were a materialist and the only thing that really exists is, you know, matter, uh, the only thing that really exists is matter in complex systems, but there, is no other, there are no other parts in your ontology. Um, if you ha if you exist in or if you live in a kind of like an animist ontology, then there are other there are other minds in the world as well, and that's just another aspect of of an ontology. So when I talk about ontological flooding, I mean like we're just letting in all of the possibilities, all of the potential things that there could be. We have to, you know, be open to them. We have to not build walls, you know, blocking us off from stuff, and actually engage and participate in experience. Well, and I think that's a that's an interesting thing in that it leaves other explanations open, number one, but it leaves almost anything because you can't actually do something unless you believe you can do something. You know, mm. there, there's very few times in the world where you will do like you will do like when you're a baby, obviously, and I've got a baby. And so I see the baby amazed by everything, you know, like, oh, my God, I couldn't I can't believe I turned over. Can you believe I turned over? I can't believe I turned over. <laughs> Like, I didn't even know that was possible. Yeah. How many times in your life have you done something that you did not think was possible before? And mm -hmm. then, like, then you believe it, and then you can do it all the time. Yeah, like, it's true. A lot of times with physical things, you know, I was talking about surfing before, or you think about wakeboarding or all these kind of things. Like, before you know it's possible to, like, to stand on that board, uh, and yeah. then, then it just goes into your subconscious, and you're, you have this kinetic way of learning it and understanding it. And so mm. when we think of everything of our, and I, 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 listeners at home, I'm, I'm pointing to the front of my head. I'm such a, <laughs> He's pointing to his frontal lobe. I'm such a cro-mag. Uh, <laughs> you know, if we think of everything as in only the stuff in our, our, our present, the consciousness that's right in front of us, the stuff that's in our reasoning, rational mind, um, yeah. then we forget that like 80% and I'm just pulling that percentage right out of the university of my butt. But uh, 80% of the, the things that our brain does are autonomous. It's all subconscious. And I think even allowing just for the fact that there are things that our subconscious believes that our, our consciousness doesn't mm -hmm. can lead us to yeah. a, a greater understanding or at least an empathy with the world around us. Definitely. Yeah, it's basically not closing yourself off to that possibility. The th there are things that we experience and that you know, everyday things that we just take for granted and then we assume that that's all that reality is. <laughs> but actually, we have to be aware of the fact that there may well be a lot more weirdness going on than we, you know, than we experience anyway. So is there anything in your studies when you've studied different cultures um, that there's something that is, uh, like, th that they thought of or that's in their belief system that... You're like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't think of that. Or that, that makes so much sense. Like, why aren't the rest of us all thinking that right now? Yeah, well, there's lots of different things. I mean, coming back to the, the idea of permaculture, 
you look at because um, that's an idea that I'm like, oh, this kind of makes sense and it's pretty common sense and obvious. But when you look at indigenous cultures, they are basically doing permaculture. Their whole socio-economic cultural system or whatever is, you know, it's local. It's enmeshed within the the system of their place. It's constructed out of it, and it's kind of it's a sustainable way of living. Obviously, not in all cases, but. Mm-hmm. That's oh, what I've, it is. I've got an example. Okay. I actually Let's have an example that, that works with that. Going back to the Oneida again, which are part of what most people call the Iroquois Confederacy, but they call themselves uh, the Haudenosaunee, the people of the Longhouse. Anyway, they have the story of the three sisters, which is corn, beans, and squash. And it's a like a sacred story of these three sisters being these plants and how they, they live together and protect each other. And so in traditional gardens, they would plant these three plants together. And what was found, you know, scientifically is is that, you know, that really made great sense because yeah. um, the squash had these thorny vines that would grow all around the rest of the plants protecting them. The corn stalks provided a uh, trellis for the beans. And then there were all kinds of things going on with the, the nutrients too, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, the plants were putting uh, nutrients, you know, back into the soil for the other plants. And uh, so, you know, there's this, this symbiotic relationship of the three sisters. And so, you know, that's uh, an example kind of what I think you're, you're talking about, Jack, is is that legends can confer, you know, a story, but there's more to a story that's underneath. And there is science to, you know, what, uh, you know, they've been doing for centuries. Yeah. And the story gives you kind of a, uh an empathetic relationship with the science it helps you to understand it and it's like oh yeah makes sense they're three sisters they they get along well with each other right and it's um getting back to educational terminology it's differentiation it's you know everyone from you know the smallest child on up can understand can appreciate the relationship of of three sisters yeah um and so it's great analogy in that way yeah and it'd be interesting way of uh, doing kind of like um using uh, indigenous stories to to explore other kinds of ideas that you might not have encountered before, like scientific principles. It's cool. Well, I was wondering if the, for people who are interested in learning more about paranthropology and they're interested in learning more about maybe the connections between cultures of paranormal stories of, you know, we were talking about near-death experiences or spirit possession before. Yeah. Are there any particular authors or books that you'd recommend or things that struck you when you were starting your research? Yeah, well, there's quite a, a whole load of different things. <laughs> um, the first, obviously, I'm going to mention Paranthropology, the journal, but it's a good, starting, a good starting point for anyone who's interested in going down some of these different rabbit holes. There's so many different articles about, you know, everything from just like straight up ghost stories right through to to weird dreams and kind of like eco-psychology stuff. So definitely I would check out that. And the best way to access all of that stuff is at www.paranthropology.co.uk. Um, and then there's all of my books and publications and things which you can find quite easily. And basically, in all of these things that I've written and that you know, these other people have written, you can find the, like, the bedrock in the references that we're drawing on. <laughs> 
put a whole body of stuff out there. We're definitely going to have all the links in the show notes for this, and you, you'll be, be able great. to find that othersidepodcast.com slash uh, 132 is where you're going to find uh, more links to Jack and all of his cool works and, and parentropology. You know, I'm interested in, in where this field is going as far as, like, what do you want to study or explore, and what do you think is the, is the great unknown of this particular type of thing with, uh, that you're excited to, to kind of dig into? Mm. Well, my line of thinking at the moment has been for the for throughout my thesis I've been thinking about um, different ways of understanding spirits and how we can take we can approach things like mediumship and spirit possession like rationally but not reductively and it's only now that I'm beginning to realize how this ties in with all of this permaculture and um, ecological uh, awareness stuff. I think that is where it ultimately leads. People will ask, like, what's the practical outcome of, uh, inve- of thinking about whether spirits are real or not? And then now I've realized that the practical outcome of thinking about whether these things are real or not and have ontological flooding is that it can help us to re-engage with the world that is currently suffering some kind of a seriously nasty ecological crisis. And it is a human, you know, it's caused by humans. So a whole new way of thinking perhaps these like local uh i use the term terminology of the norwegian philosopher arnie ness um like an ecosophy my colleague mark schroll like, published one of his books uh last year transpersonal ecosophy he's kind of moving in similar directions as well um basically it's leading us towards thinking about new ways of engaging with our world <laughs> so how do we temper are like scientific advances because you know when it comes to defending ourselves against the weather and drought Mm. and and fever and the flu and all the things and and freaking malaria you know when you think about malaria the fact that we don't have to worry about just dying of malaria next week is awesome and so what we've gained from you know scientific advances is great but Mm -hmm. how do we temper that and I mean, yeah. the fact that we have the entire source of human writing and knowledge and stuff like that in our pocket at all time, that we can just be like, hey, what's this? And then we can talk, yeah. we can talk to a thing the size of an iPod or whatever, and it'll just tell us, you know, it'll, it, yeah. it talks back to us like magic. Like, how do we temper those advances with the wisdom of millennia of, uh, you, you say that the, the three sisters, you know, as an example, like... That's wisdom accrued over millennia of evolution, of us learning mm-hmm. how to live properly in our environment. So yeah. I, I think that like learning how to temper that is the next phase. It's going to have to be. But I think this is where this idea of ontological flooding kind of comes in. It's basically realizing that, yeah, you know, science is there and it is good and it's, it explains all of, you know, well, it doesn't explain everything, but it explains some stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's not the only way. It's just not. And when it comes down to it, there are so many different cultures around the world that have developed their own equally as complex uh, ways of interacting with the world um, that are, you know, perfectly well suited. I mean, everyone who exists today, you know, we've all grown up in the world and we've all developed our own way of living. And they're not all based around scientific rationalism and they're not all based around um, capitalism or um, a kind of relationship with the world that is destructive and and all these kinds of things ontological flooding is really about saying look there is no 
there's no one saying that this is the only way that we can live. There are loads of different ways, loads of potentials, loads of possibilities. And all we need is kind of like creative ways of, of thinking about it, new creative ways. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And that's, and that's a great way to think about the, the practical applications of the thing. Now, I mean, most of us think about anthropology. We think about like Margaret Mead, like taking yeah. up and, you know, going out to the islands and stuff. Yeah. So are you going out to live with anybody in the, in the <laughs> hills or the islands or anything like that? Are you going to, are we going to see you like dropped off in Brazil, like parachuting out there in the middle and just be like, <laughs> hey guys, I'm, I'm Jack. How are we, how are we doing today? You know, take me to your shaman. I would love to go to Brazil, but this is the thing. We think of anthropology as something that's to do with people, you know, in far off distant lands, but actually anthropology is to do with human beings. So you can do anthropology wherever you, you are. It's just thinking about human beings and what human beings do. So my research was actually with um, spirit mediums in Bristol. Uh, so suburban people um, in living in predominantly like Euro-American Western culture who at the same time as doing all of that stuff, also gather together every week, more than once a week, to communicate with spirits through entranced mediums. So you don't have to go far to do anthropology. You don't have to go, you know, to, to other countries, although you can, obviously. And I think that's funny because when you say that, like just suburban mediums, like first of all, suburban yeah. psychic could be the next big reality show. But, you know, um, <laughs> oh, God save but, us. you know I, I just I find myself... You know, running into people, obviously in in our line of work, which is dealing with uh, with weirdos um, like ourselves, <laughs> like you're going to run into people that say, "Oh yeah, I talk to the dead." You you bet I do, and yeah, and people you wouldn't expect in a lot of situations. So it's funny that you know you were you doing this research right in Bristol of mediums. Now, when you were doing that. And you came into that for the first time, because I know I always talk to a medium. I'm, I'm trained by, you know, my entire life of thinking of the whole spiritualist phenomenon as all, it's all BS, it's all crap, you know, that kind mm. of thing. Um, when you were doing that research, how did you get over, uh, how did you maybe get over like pre, and of course you'd been in the university system, how, how did you get over your prejudices in dealing with them and maybe allow yourself to be ontologically flooded? Yeah, exactly. Um well, it's funny. The very first time I went to one of these seances, automatically it smashed my preconceptions because you, when you think of Victorian seances and stuff, you think like old uh, manor houses or whatever mm -hmm. with Victorian gentlemen all like tight with tight ties and whatever. And they're at night and there's a storm outside and they're doing a seance around a table and things like that. But this seance that I attended was... In the morning, so I had to be there for 9 a.m. Wow, a 9 a.m. Um, seance. That doesn't sound spooky <laughs> at all. I had to get out of my student accommodation and walk up the road, and it was all frozen and icy outside, so it was a, it was very, it was a very bright day. Um, and I got to the place, and we went out into the garden. And it was like, oh, what, we're doing the seance in the garden? <laughs> Took me to the shed, and we were doing the seance in the shed. All of a sudden, all of the preconceptions were already blown out of the water. And then when I went in there, I was like, hmm, you know, I don't, I'm not expecting to see anything or whatever. But then I did. I saw stuff from the very first seance. But they were things that weren't, they weren't like obviously physical things. 
Um, they weren't things that I could automatically say that was just some kind of a trick. They seemed, in fact, to be more kind of like subjective, uh, like visual things, like little flashes of light. And I saw the medium's face appear to shift and transform, um, turning into other people's face. And they were really like on this board, they were liminal experiences. They're on the borderline between apparently objective and subjective, uh, which as soon as you've, you're in that frame of mind, um, you, kind of, you have to be open to it. It's happening in front of you. So the first time you went to a seance, you didn't get there tripping balls or anything like that. Because you, 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 you had to walk. Uh, over yeah. the ice and stuff like that. So number one, you, like you got to be connected with the physical enough to be able to walk there. <laughs> yeah. And, so you were not tripping. <sighs> is, is, <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like one of my, the understandings of the seance that I've developed since then is that the whole situation is there basically to induce trips in people. Um, obviously we know that sitting in darkened rooms uh, can induce altered states of consciousness. It's a tried and tested method of producing visual imagery using music, which they used music, even though it was just popular music. Wait, music what, is also what? What popular songs did they use? The, the seance, like you think, like, was it like Adele or something? Yeah, what, what kind of what kind of music would it wouldn't be like Spice? Like nobody goes to like, let's talk to the dead people. Turn on the Spice Girls. Like no, 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 not dead careers, dead people. Be surprised. <laughs> because part of the idea is that the the more upbeat the music is, the more kind of energy it produces, and uh, the, the easier it is for spirits to come through in that way. They like a jovial atmosphere. So you wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't rule out hearing Spice Girls in a seance. Sure. So it's like raising the cone of energy, right? You know, you're exactly. trying to, yeah, I get yeah. it. But it doesn't matter what kind of music it is. We just we know that music has this capacity to induce us into alter states. So you know, if it's got drums in it, we can use that. Combine it with uh, sensory deprivation in the dark room or red lights or whatever, and all of a sudden you are kind of tripping. Uh, but I think that's the experience, and that's what that's the whole point of uh, of seances. They are like experience modulators of experience. They help us to experience certain kinds of things. Okay, so the idea of the ritual, and you get in there, and you know, in the dark room, the music's starting. I mean, everybody's mm -hmm. kind of putting themselves into the mindset too. And, you know, we, we kind of talked about this before when we talked about Joshua Cutchin about paranormal smells and the idea oh, yeah. of, of brimstone, <laughs> sulfur, that kind of smell yeah. being associated with it's Bigfoot experiences, fairy experiences, UFO experiences, ghost and demon experiences. People, people sm smell the same thing. And the idea of sulfur, that, that smell mm -hmm. being the, the trigger that gets us into that state. So yeah. if we know that music can change your state of consciousness and we know that the yeah. light, the amount of light can change your state of consciousness, that um, mm -hmm. meditation can change your state of consciousness and everybody getting into that, that setup together in the ritual and then yeah. changing the state of consciousness to make themselves maybe open to some kind of communication, uh, spirit communication, yeah. mediumship, like a psychedelic. We were joking about trip and balls, but a psychedelic is just the shortcut. Like, you can do all that work or take this, buddy. You go right there. Like, this is the express lane. Or even better, do all that work and have a psychedelic at the same time and see what happens. Yeah, so, uh, that's it. I, I like this idea of triggers. So you saw that stuff. Um, and, like, when her, when her face was changing... Is that something that was, we talked about subjective versus objective uh, in the yeah. experience. Was, was that something that you felt that other people were noticing too when you were in the... Well, this is, 
this is an interesting thing because I saw it and I was like, well, this is a subjective experience and I'll keep it to myself and I won't mention it to anyone in case they, they think I've gone weird or whatever. <laughs> and then when we go out into the house to have a cup of tea and some cake, as you do at the end of a seance, and you talk about your experiences and what happened, I didn't mention anything, but I heard others say that they'd seen a similar kind of thing. The, the face they described, like kind of like a bald Chinese monk kind of face, uh, matched with my own what I thought was a subjective experience. So, but it was objective. Yeah, well, or sem- somewhere between shared. the two. Yeah, shared. Was it matching up with uh, the spirit that was coming across? Well, there was no spirit particularly coming across at that time, um, although there were key spirits that did come through. But the, this was just kind of in the build-up to a particular spirit coming through. And they, I found out afterwards that they call it transfiguration or um, overshadowing. It's where the face changes. And it was just basically like lots of different faces coming and going, um, wow. not, not settling on any kind of face. Although this, this Chinese monk face seemed to, it seemed to fall and it just kind of like slid down and oh, disappeared. And, and that wasn't the control or anything, was it? Because I know mediums sometimes will have a control over them. They do, yeah. Uh, I don't think so. Wait, what, what do you the, mean a con- control? Like a, a spirit control. It's kind of like the spirit. The mediums that I've been working with, uh, they, they each have a spirit team. So they have a group of regular spirits who communicates. And they usually have one who is a control or kind of like in charge of procedures. So yeah, kind of an arbiter. Yeah, or a gatekeeper. Gatekeeper, yeah. Okay, so that's like their guide. That's like the, the person that helps them tour around. That's yeah. like Dante had his spirit control in the, like Virgil, right? Was his spirit control in the <laughs> Inferno? and Yeah, exactly. So the spirit control uh, is the one who lets through the other spirits and sort of says, right, it's time for you to go and let someone else come through and all of that kind of thing. Fantastic. The master of ceremonies. Master of ceremonies. <laughs> now, yeah. did, did you find it that in your in your study of mediums, and it, I mean, I can't wait to, to check out more about this, even this particular one, because I think it's that that kind of study of modern mediumship. Like we we talk about the spiritualist phenomena of mm. the late nineteenth century and early twentieth century a lot, and people have done a lot of research into the history of that. In Wisconsin, yeah. we still have a spiritualist school. Yeah, we have a spiritualist school. Then we we have one of the only um, existing spiritualist camps as well during the summer. Okay. So yeah, one one of like three in the United States. So you can still go and see a seance right here and do the whole thing. But I'm interested. So did you see anything in in any of the seances that you visited and that you studied that kind of blew your mind? Where they knew something that there was like like, no way you could know that, or they had they had a connection to someone and and delivered some information that they either had had to set it up or you're like, this has got to be real. Knowing the unknowable. Yes. Yeah. For me, I've never had any kind of like major, with the mediums that I've spoken to, major things that have just clicked and it's like definitely something weird and paranormal going on here. But it's the kind of cumulative effect for me. The different, different things like, so... If, for example, having my own subjective experience seemingly verified by someone else, or um, the consistency of spirit guides or spirit you know, communicators over time. So, you know, if they were faking it, you might expect them to to slip up every now and again, but they don't seem to. They seem to be distinctive personalities or whatever. Mm. It's just a cumulative effect of little things like this. And then there have been occasions where we've kind of been expected to be convinced by it mm-hmm. um and it really wasn't convincing 
So with certain kinds of um, physical mediumship with ectoplasm and all these kinds of things, I went to a couple of seances where that was supposed to be produced and it wasn't as, you know, it wasn't as convincing to me personally as the more subjective things that I'd experienced earlier with less, less developed mediums. So that's interesting. So that like, I mean, nobody gets slimed or anything. <laughs> no, it was just this, um, like a strand of spirits basically said, do you want to see some ectoplasm? And everyone's like, yeah, we want to see ectoplasm. <laughs> yeah. The answer is yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just some dude in the back with silly string. <laughs> well, it, it wasn't silly string, but it seemed to be like silk or something, but it was not very impressive, unfortunately. But I, mean, I obviously I didn't go up and touch it or anything, so I can't rule out the possibility that it was real ectoplasm, personally. But, Where did um, it come from? <laughs> it was just coming out of the cabinet. Oh, out of the cabinet, okay. Because okay. yeah. I, I know uh, it can come out of some strange place. Well, sure. And dip, <laughs> and right, dip, and we, we talked about that in our discussion of the paranormal bromance of Houdini <laughs> and Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, that one of Arthur Conan Doyle's favorite mediums, she had ectoplasm out of the hoo-ha. <laughs> the paranormal hoo-ha. And um, <laughs> that was the thing. And Houdini's like, I just don't buy it. And so like, if, yeah. if, you, you know, if you're studying something and trying to remain professional and you're like, hey, hey, that's <laughs> you, why don't you get a sample of that? Um, <laughs> that's right. This deal. is the thing. Like, even though I wasn't particularly convinced by this uh, demonstration of ectoplasm, you can still look at, you know, all of the Victorian and Edwardian psychical research stuff and all of these guys were you know in their day jobs scientists and you know university types we trust them on on everything else like Oliver Lodge and um, William Crooks for example we trust all of their scientific discoveries and breakthroughs and we wouldn't have tv and stuff without them Mm -hmm. but then when it comes to them talking about oh and um what's his name um the co-discoverer of evolution oh yeah um Wallace. Yeah. You know, we take evolution for granted as something that happens. But then when they start talking about having going to seances and seeing ectoplasm and things, we're like, nah, don't believe that. But well, hey, we wouldn't be able to go to space without Isaac Newton, right? We wouldn't be able to, like most of the things we wouldn't be able to do without Isaac Newton. Yet mm-hmm. uh at the same time he's trying to figure out, okay man, how I'm gonna I wanna get rich by turning lead into gold. So let's let's yeah. work on this. And so we're all like, well that's all <laughs> we're like, oh, that's all that's all crap. But that's half of what he did. Half of what he did is like the most important foundation of uh our you know engineering. And the other half, yeah. somebody'd be like, You're crazy, Isaac. And he'd be like, he'd throw an apple right at you. <laughs> it's the same with like uh, Giordano Bruno. I was I read something about him yesterday because it was like the 500th anniversary of his execution or something but obviously you know he was executed because he was talking about how you know there are other planets in space and there's probably life on them and that we go around the sun and all these kinds of things so he's right on the cutting edge of like mainstream material science and at the same time was a practitioner of magic and alchemy and all these kinds of things right there's no clear distinction between them really and that's an awesome that's an awesome point I think. It's like well we we believe them one way and then we we discard the rest of what they say mm. as just you know as we we'd say oh that's crazy talk. And yeah. uh, how can you like these brilliant minds how can you just separate that stuff? Right. And that's not authentic either to to have the, you know that that separation is artificial 
And, you know, I think, you know, by bringing those things back in, I mean, maybe that's where we'll get to integration, you know, for the future to see that the spiritual and the scientific are not mutually exclusive. And I'd say we have one more question for you that I kind of want to get out, Jack, is that for anybody (laughs) listening, what would you say is if you want to kind of reconnect and you want to, you know, feel closer to you know, maybe your town or your ecosystem or anything or like reality that. in general, or, right? Yeah. Or just you know, just feel more grounded yourself as uh, someone that studied probably the rituals and ceremonies of a ton of different cultures, without just you know going in and having to find a dealer and grab some acid or whatever, or like going out <laughs> in the forest and finding some magic mushrooms or uh, whatever yeah. you know, uh, whatever low life is hanging out in the street corner. What would you recommend as maybe one of the best ways to kind of? feel more grounded, feel more connected. We were talking about the rituals and triggers and stuff like that before. Mm-hmm. What, what was something you'd recommend? Going out for walks is a good one if you want to engage with your uh, local environment. But when you're doing it, pay attention to your experience, uh, the whole phenomenology. This is something that I kind of tie into my my work in some ways, but it's also... It's just life, isn't it? It's the experience of being a living being. And it's when you start, like I was teaching an A-level class the other day and I suddenly had a realization to myself that I actually exist. And it's like, I just stopped in front of the class. It's like, yeah, this is weird. It is weird. (laughs) Existence is weird. And we do, we exist. So that it's through our own existence that we engage with reality and connect with it we just have to be you know we have to think about it don't just ignore the fact that we exist don't take it for granted right it's a weird thing it's the weirdest thing that we should be a sentient being that exists in a universe in the first place it's just totally crazy that's funny you had that it's like he had that moment of appreciation like holy crap i'm here Like you were saying, ontological flooding, maybe we can become more comfortable with all these possibilities existing at once, you know, like broadening our interpretation of events or or just just letting it be there, you know, and not just brushing it away. You know, like I have done. <laughs> well, and it's okay to have a balance too. It's, it's okay to be like, well, sometimes, you know, when you go to the dentist, you want them to give you some hard science about your gums or whatever. You're like, yeah. okay, I want to. And then sometimes you need to take out the garbage and it doesn't have to be a spiritual experience. And so you have to balance that with the idea of like, well, leave yourself open to the idea of taking a walk in nature. Not, mm-hmm. I know this sounds like such a cliche now. Don't look at your phone, you know, or yeah. just, just. It's true, it's true. But realize that you you have a connection to the 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 birds out there, and it's sixty degrees in February here in Madison, Wisconsin <laughs> yes, we're, today, Jack. We're very so, lucky. so something's happening. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but yeah. I love it. But it's not ordinary. But like yes. walking outside, and okay, it's maybe this network of mushrooms underneath the ground that's connecting you to that squirrel over there, or it's connecting you to the tree. <laughs> that was a chipmunk. Or the chipmunk. <laughs> but but I mean, the idea is that it's something simple as walking around and appreciating your surroundings and it doesn't yeah. have to be some kind of uh you know new age no. hippity dippity experience it no can way. just be fun yeah it it can just be being alive i mean that's the thing when we just for some reason we distance ourselves from nature we don't think that we are a part of it but there's no there's no other way we are it you know we are nature as much as we don't want to think that we are 
And I think that's the simple realization, really. Mm -hmm. And then to bring in the analogy of the phone, like looking at your phone, you know, you're looking for notifications, you know, (laughs) you know, and and maybe put the phone down and look for similar notifications in nature that they're out there. And they're maybe coming at you through a different direction than than you're you're, you're uh, usually comfortable like receiving messages. But you know maybe there are messages coming through, Ooh. and you just have to open yourself up to them. And and then you know once you click on it, <laughs> subjectively, you'll be able to connect with those things uh, more easily over time through practice. Yeah, just be receptive. And it may be a lot more valuable to you in understanding yourself and understanding the world than seeing what your friend had for breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Jack, I got to say, we'll have to bring you back sometime when you have a new book or something to talk about because um, I'm totally interested in everything you've got going on. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. And you guys can find links to all of Jack's stuff and his books and the Parentropology and everything right at our show notes, otherSidePodcast.com slash 132. Thanks, Allison and Jack. Thank you. Another great interview, Mike. And thanks, Allison, again, for suggesting having Jack on the show, because that was certainly different and certainly cool to yeah. hear. <laughs> Anarchy in the UK with, with Jack Hunter <laughs> and para-anthropology. Para-anthropology. And a special thanks to Jack, of course, for working with us on our altered time zones. Yes, it's true. When somebody's on Greenwich Mean Time, you know, yeah. or whatever, they're <laughs> way ahead of us. But Jack was a cool guy. Make sure you check out the links to his books and stuff like that. And those are in the show notes at othersidepodcast.com slash 132. One of the things that Jack talked about was ontological flooding. Huh? What? Right. So <laughs> ontology, and he, we didn't explain this that much in the interview. Ontology is the study of being. Okay? Hmm. So, you know, he talks, he, he's like, you know, it just blew my mind that I exist when he was doing a lecture. And it, it sometimes it does blow your mind. Like we exist, we're here. Yeah. Like we're like Wendy. How do you explain that, Mike? We're in uh, our little office talking about <laughs> paranormal stuff and talking about band stuff right now, and it's yeah. just like we're here. Whoa. Right, man. Whoa. And I know that that sounds kind of like something some kind of stoner college student would say, but at the same time, studying consciousness is something we just discussed, and in the song a couple of weeks ago, the mirror test, like our conscious, like how do we know what makes us alive, what differentiates us? And so when Jack talks about this ontological flooding, the idea that you're open to all possibilities, you don't close your mind off to anything, and that is the materialist point of view, so feeling something, the physical aspect, the spiritual point of view, how does it make you feel? How does it strike you? And there's also the, the mythic aspect. What's the story of the place you're at? What, you know, what have the humans before brought to that mm-hmm. perspective? And so ontological flooding, I think, inspired the idea for this week's song. And this week's song especially, too, because we talk about anthropology and the different shared experiences that cultures have across the world. One of the shared myths in cultures across the world is the idea of the flood, Noah's biblical flood. Yes. And a whole bunch of cultures have this thing that, that sometime in the past, a huge flood happened on right. this planet. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that kind of, we thought, well, the ontological flooding and also this kind of brings out the anthropology and the shared experiences between cultures. And so this Sunspot song is called The Flood. It all makes sense. 
for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Hey, Wendy. Hey, Mike. You know who we don't want to forget? I do know who we don't want to forget. Who's that? We don't want to forget Ned. Ned. Ned's the best. And also the rest of our Patreon supporters, because all of you make it possible for us to continue doing Mm -hmm. this on a regular basis all the time, creating podcasts, creating songs, making videos, coming up with new crazy weird adventures to go on and share with you and and bring you guys into. So. So thank you so much for being part of that community. And if you guys are not part of that community yet and you're interested in being in it, you can visit othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Thanks and have a great week. Hey, Wendy. Hey, Mike. You know who do you don't... <laughs> Found your outtake. Thanks. <laughs>